0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 265, Capstone. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. In this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. A few weeks ago, we chatted with Najude Morancy about Artemis mission design. In terms of orbits, the first three Artemis missions look pretty different. First in distant retrograde orbit for Artemis 1, then a lunar flyby for Artemis 2. By Artemis III, humans will enter into an orbit called a near-rectilinear halo orbit, or NRHO, for the first time. There are a lot of perks to this orbit, but probably at the top is its ability to give astronauts access to land on the lunar south pole, an area of great interest for exploration and discovery for Artemis. After Artemis III, astronauts will regularly enter NRHO to rendezvous with Gateway, NASA's future lunar orbiting platform. Gateway will be a staging platform, among many other things, for astronauts before they head down to the lunar surface. And though it won't be continuously inhabited like the International Space Station is in low Earth orbit, Gateway will be permanently parked in NRHO, something that hasn't been done before for any spacecraft. Of course, before we put humans into NRHO, we need to test it. Enter CAPSTONE, which is, in typical fashion that we find on this podcast, an acronym. Here it is. It is Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment. Capstone successfully launched in June 2022 and is just now getting into its key objective of its mission, testing NRHO. As it gets into this exciting place, we're bringing in some key people to discuss this important mission. On this episode, we have Brad Cheatham, Principal Investigator of Capstone and CEO of Advanced Space. And we have Diane Davis, mission design lead for NASA's Gateway Program. NRHO and Capstone. Let's figure out what this is all about. Enjoy. minus five seconds counting. Mark. Mission start. Is it? No we have a podcast. Brad and Diane, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: All right, Capstone. Right, uh, we're recording this a couple of months in advance, but really, um, we're we're really really close to the beginning of uh, probably the the most critical phase, one of the one of the, at least one of the top critical phases of the mission, which is NRHO. show. We're going to do a deep dive into what that is. Uh, talk a little bit about Gateway and a little bit about Capstone. Um, I'm very excited to have this conversation and have these different worlds collide. But I really wanted to start with you guys first, um, Brad. If I'll toss to you first, just you know, you're the CEO of Advanced Space. Uh, you're the principal investigator of Capstone. I sort of w- what wonder what got you to where you are right now.
1: Sure, yeah, thanks. So, um, you know, for me, this story kind of starts uh, just over 11 years ago, uh, along with uh, some co-founders who started a, a company uh, called Advanced Space. Um, At the time, uh, navigation in cislunar space was actually my my Ph.D. research, and and so I was working on that technically, uh, working on a Ph.D., and and we kind of left the Ph.D. and and focused on building a company, and that that capability became the basis uh, for the company, and then ultimately uh, what got us to uh, to fly a capstone mission.
0: Okay. All right. And what, was, uh, what, what is Advanced Space? What's the company's goals and missions? Like, how, how'd you end up in working on CubeSats?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. So, Advanced Space, when we started the company, like I said, over 11 years ago, we really, my co-founders and I kind of got excited about space and, and me personally excited about space through uh, a group called Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, or Steds. Hmm. Uh, and for us, that was where, we, where I really realized, and my, one of my other co-founders, that I could personally get involved in the, in the space industry. And so from there, we kind of evaluated, you know, what do we want to do? How are we going to contribute? Um, and for us, our passion was really to enable the sustainable exploration, development, and settlement of space. That was our, our motivation, and at the time, there wasn't a place that we could find that, that was going to let us do that, uh, And so we set out to, to create our own company, uh, but as grad students, we, we didn't have uh, you know billions of dollars like uh, other folks who were starting companies in that time period, uh, so instead of building rockets, uh, we decided to build orbits because we could afford to build orbits uh, on our, you know, uh, grad student uh, salaries. So that was really kind of what got us into orbits. And then, uh, as, as it relates to the Capstone mission and, and CubeSats, um, for us, we we're really riding a wave that started many years ago in CubeSats, where for us it was using these existing capabilities for us to go demonstrate the the critical technologies that we're demonstrating for Capstone.
0: Excellent. Okay, yeah, and we'll do a deeper dive into just sort of how these worlds ended up colliding, but that's great. Uh, thank you for being here, Bradley. Um, now, Diane, you uh, have been at NASA for a bit, and now you're a mission design lead for Gateway. How'd you end up in this role?
2: Well, not, you know, like Brad, my background is also in orbit. So I did my PhD in astrodynamics at Purdue, where I was studying orbits that depend on, like, like Cislunar orbits, like capstone, the gravity of multiple bodies simultaneously, like, like the Earth and the Moon at once. Um, I started working at Johnson here about a decade ago. Um, but in late 2015, I picked up this tricky task of trying to figure out how to keep a spacecraft in this unique orbit, this near rectilinear halo orbit. Mm. Um, it was for the, the future capabilities team at Johnson. Um, so since then, I kind of immersed myself in the dynamics of this orbit. And in the meantime, the habitat concept grew into the Gateway program. So in 2018, I took over as the mission design lead for Gateway. And I lead a team. We study the cost to stay in the orbit, how we maintain the correct attitude, how we can safely deploy objects from Gateway and move around within the orbit and get there and back again, um, and how we track Gateway from Earth so we know where it is and how fast it's
0: moving. All right, so we got two people super excited about orbits. Now, of course, part of the capstone mission, and, and really what this is testing out, like you're saying, Diane, is this you called it? I think you said interesting was the, was the word you said? I might I might be messing that up, but but really, it's this near rectilinear halo orbit. Can you tell us what's so unique, what's so interesting about this particular orbit?
2: Yeah, this orbit is really big. It's a lot bigger than some of the orbits that we're used to seeing. So, so words the Apollo missions were in low lunar orbit. And so, you know, they were about 100 kilometers from the surface of the moon and circular orbits that orbit about every two hours. The Gateway's NRHO takes six and a half days to complete one revolution around the moon. Hmm. So it makes a close approach of about 1,600 kilometers from the North Pole and gets 70,000 kilometers away from the moon at its furthest point. Um, So it's it's really big. And so that's the the gravity of the Earth pulls on the orbit quite a bit, as well as the moon. And so... uh, yeah it behaves differently than the the low orbits that we might be more accustomed to
0: hmm. okay and so so why you know why is this a nice orbit then for for the gateway i guess actually let me pull back a little bit more just what is gateway why why is this a thing that we're pursuing and and why do we want to put it in nrho
2: sure so so the gateway will be a crude outpost in deep space it's going to be permanently located around the moon And our astronauts are going to visit the Gateway uh, about once a year for a few weeks or a month. And so this this station around the moon will serve as a staging location for our human landing missions to the lunar surface and also potentially the destinations beyond Earth orbit. Um, It's also important as a proving ground for deep space technologies like like solar electric propulsion for Mm -hmm. large crewed spacecraft that we may want for future crewed missions uh, to Mars, for example.
0: Okay. All right. So a lot of things going into this. Now, um, NRHO, uh, Brad, let me go to you for a second because I want to understand just sort of orbits in general. You you spent a lot of time and you had a lot of fascination in this. I know as we're, you know, we're, we're, and we're talking about the Artemis uh, Artemis efforts, right? For for Gateway, that's under Artemis. This uh, larger idea of a sustainable human presence on and around the Moon. Gateway being the around the Moon portion of that. Um, but you know, we're talk We are. Uh, we're probably at this point uh, at the back end, if not completely finished, with um, the Artemis One mission, which had a direct. Um, uh, distant retrograde orbit. Then there's the, the Artemis II, which is the lunar flyby. You got NRHO, which is where you know this this sort of staging ground that's around the moon. There's a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different ways that we can go around the moon. Um, Apollo, for example, had had its own had its own uh, orbit. That just You know, when you're looking at all of these different orbits, what what exactly are you kind of, besides, you know, the physics of it, what exactly are you considering when, when you're looking at all the different ways that we can visit the moon?
1: Really interesting question. Yeah, I think the uh, the thing that we look at, um, and I, I defer back to, to Diane to add to this if, if she wants, but I, I think the way we think about, um, you know, these type of orbits is is really you're designing um, a, a, a program or an architecture, right? You're not designing the orbit. The orbit is, mm-hmm. is meeting a purpose. And in the case of, of Apollo, right, the, the Apollo program was, was going down. Everything was expand expendable we were leaving it there um and so they went kind of directly to a low lunar orbit to the surface and and back home what we're really excited about with gateway and artemis and, and the the stuff that's coming out right now and that we're we're helping to to inform is that these are really you know infrastructure elements that are going to be reusable uh, you know, I think in our, in our vision as a company, sustainability is very important that we don't want, you know, one and done flag and footprints. And what we see in the ability of something like uh, uh, NRHO and having Gateway up there is really use reusable cap- cap- capabilities and capacity, um, because the idea now is that we're going to go to stay and, and build a foothold uh, to go further. Mm-hmm. And so I think as you start thinking about that now, these other orbits that maybe are not... The first ones you would start with, but are things that when you start thinking about optimizing an overall architecture um, for space exploration and, and development, that's where, where we see a lot of excitement. And then for us, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, mm-hmm. one of the things is these, these orbits are a little more uh, interesting or a little more challenging to operate in. And that's where things like Capstone and some of the underlying technologies, we see as sort of enabling that infrastructure to to be efficient and, and to be uh, you know be there for a long time.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. Diane, let me sort of go to you to sort of expand on that, right? What Brad is talking about is um, these, you know, you think about a mission, what are your mission goals? What are your mission objectives? And then to, to meet the needs of whatever goals you want to achieve, you, you pick the right orbit. So when it comes to Artemis, right, and what exactly we want to do beyond gateway, right? Gateway is being folding into the mix of everything that is Artemis. What exactly is 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 good and, and maybe, maybe more challenging? Challenging as Brad is alluding to about specifically NRHO.
2: Yeah, Brad is exactly right. So, you know, we want we're gonna establish Gately as a long term presence around the moon. Mm. So one of the primary things we looked at, well, how much does it, does it cost to stay in this orbit for a long time? Mm. The NRHO is nice because it's it's naturally balanced between the Earth's gravity and the moon's gravity. So you're not fighting against the forces out there. Um so you only need small corrections to correct to, to the correct to the trajectory every week so we can keep the gateway in orbit for its full lifetime you know 15 years or more for really low cost um so you know that was one of the reasons why it was selected hmm. but but again the gateway's purpose is an it's an outpost out there right so we're going to aggregate supplies and consumables and spacesuits and the lander itself so that artemis and orion can come bring the crew and they can all head down to the lunar surface well that means we have visiting vehicles coming and going frequently we have logistics modules Bring supplies, we've got Orion bringing the crew, we've got HLS coming going. Mm. And because the orbit is so large, it sits right at the top of the lunar gravity well, which means it's really inexpensive relatively, for example, relative to low lunar orbit, to get in and out. So to get to the Earth and back, you know, to and from the Earth, um, the NRHO is much less expensive than going lower into the, with the lunar gravity well. <sighs>
0: Okay. All right. Yeah, you guys have thought a lot about this. Now, in terms of um in terms of NRHO, really just kind of bringing it back to the whole idea of it. Um, has there do we have any models, any spacecraft that have been in NRHO before or is this at this point, you know, you're you guys are looking at models, you guys are looking at orbits and NRHO is really just conceptual, right?
2: They're not a new discovery. So mm-hmm. my PhD advisor, Cassie Howell, wrote about them. She had a 1984 paper called "Almost Direct Linear Halo Orbits," and you know <laughs> they're members of the halo orbits, which have been studied since the 60s. Uh, in 2010, we had two spacecraft. They were the um, part of the ThEmis mission, and as a follow-on mission from ThEmis, they became um, what we call the, all capitals—the original Artemis mission—and um, they were sent out to the Earth-Moon L1 and L2 halo orbits. These unstable halos. Um, so, they were our first Earth Moon halo orbiters. Um, of course, we have plenty of other halo orbiters around Sun Earth Lagrange points, like the James Webb Space Telescope. But so far, nobody has flown a near rectilinear halo orbit. Um, mm-hmm. We've been studying the dynamics for the last a lot, for the last six years, pretty in depth. But Capstone's going to be our first one to fly in the NRHF.
0: Okay, yeah. And so, so. This is a, this is a really key point, right? Is is um, this is going to be something that a spacecraft hasn't flown in yet. Um, what like from a, for, again before we really dive into you know capstone as a mission and everything, what are just some of the things that you know we think we know about NRHO and we think is good, but we would really want to have that sort of um, that sort of trust or verification by sending a spacecraft to NRHO first
2: we're reasonably confident in what we know about the NRHO so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we'll get into this maybe a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But things like, you know, how much does it really cost to stay in there? We think we know, but are assumptions correct? You know, how much tr- how much uh, deep space network tracking do we need to really have a good fix on the position and velocity of the spacecraft around the moon in this, in this orbit? Are we, do we know for sure? We think we do. But it's going to be fantastic to have real-life data come back to, you know, give us validation of all of our assumptions that we're making now.
0: Very exciting. So let's get into it, right? Obviously, this is something that we we want to have some some under, better understanding of that can help us to plan more about Gateway and make that as as successful as possible. Diane, um, at what point was uh, did this idea of sending a CubeSat and working with commercial industry to make this to, to do a you know a mission like a CubeSat? How did this idea um, come up, and then how would you end up connecting with Advanced Space?
2: Well, you know, I'm gonna let Brad answer the first part of that question actually, because he was crucial in the beginnings of Capstone.
0: Brad, go ahead. Yeah.
1: H- yeah, happy to jump in kind of the one of the things that honestly we're most proud of with Capstone has really been the speed with which we were able to, to make it happen and, and bring it together. Um and so the conversations around uh capstone, I didn't even have a name yet, but the conversations that led to capstone uh really kind of became serious in sort of the spring of, of 2019. Mm. Uh, and then we were under a contract um, and starting to, to build the satellite within about six months. So it was pretty aggressive timeline. Um, and that was really pushed, and a and, uh, timeline was very important to us and has remained very important to us uh, because at the time the vice president had declared pretty bluntly uh, that the Artemis program needed to move forward as quickly as possible, and he used the words by any means necessary. Mm. <laughs> so that really got people's attention, and it really got our attention to say, you know, how can we step up uh, as a company, as an industry partner to NASA, and help and, and really push this forward? We, we're we're big believers, very passionate about. The Artemis program, what it stands for, and it really aligns with our with our purpose as as existing as a company. And so, from that sort of, how can we help? um, We had had a technology that we've been developing called CAPS, the Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System, Um, and we've been working on this for several years at this point. And we knew that it would be important infrastructure um, for future missions because we knew you're going to, you know, when Artemis happens and when these other things are going on, you're going to have a lot of Spacecraft operating at the moon and we're going to need systems that can scale uh, to meet that need and so we had that as a as a starting point and, and kind of built around that the idea of demonstrate technology demonstrate operations uh, and really try to quickly again time timing was important learn and inform future missions and so with that kind of in mind. Uh, we were rapidly moving out on a program, um, and and the exciting thing, as it relates to the Gateway program, from my perspective at least, is that we were actually Advanced Space was supporting Diane and her team uh, at at JSC before Capstone uh, even was a uh, you know had an acronym, <laughs> and so based on that knowledge, we were able to from you know day zero of the Capstone program really infuse the importance of what what Diane and her team are doing into how we were going to fly the, the mission, how we were going to develop the mission, and really ultimately what stuff we were going to learn, as Diane was saying, how that would, that would help the mission. So, so really, uh, you know, Gateway was there in, in, in our world before, before Capstone was, uh, but then, you know, there's this really natural uh, give and take between the two programs of, of learning and, and uh, exploration.
0: Interesting. Okay, so so then how did you take that next step to actually, you know, you had this idea. Was it was it was it advanced space that approached NASA that says, "Hey, you know, we want we're going to do this mission or we have this idea," or was it the other way around? How did the idea of, you know, how did this all come together?
1: Sure. Honestly, it was very uh, collaborative in nature. Cool. <laughs> and maybe it sounds sounds weird, but it was like, hey, we think we can do this, and and we were able to sort of iterate uh, with some key key folks and key stakeholders um, to put together what would be again a very we thought a very useful demonstration. You know, we wanted to really bring back some of that muscle memory of operating at the moon. We wanted to figure out what are the things we're not modeling. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, a long history at NASA of doing flight experiments to figure out what are the things that, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know. <laughs> and so that was really the, the motivation. And it was, it was really from the beginning, and it still remains this way to today, really an integrated team between Advanced Space, our vendors, and our NASA team, um, where it really has been, I think, quite remarkable how we've been able to coordinate across several NASA centers, across several companies, um, to get, to get this mission pulled together in, in under three years, but also, uh, and we'll talk about this, I think, a little more later, to overcome some challenges along the way.
0: Yeah, and that's sort of where I wanted to head next. Brad was was let's let's take a, a look at. You talked about this. This speed of getting Capstone uh, ready for launch um, and and working through those challenges to get us where we are today, and then eventually when we're going to post this episode. But really wanted to take it back to this idea of whenever you guys were first getting started um, and you saw this challenge to do to do um, to to try to get uh, the Artemis program and uh, its missions moving as quickly as possible, and you guys started uh, designing uh, this this technology. This capstone CubeSat and uh and started really hitting the ground running. Can you talk about some of those first moments when you're just like, okay, I got I got my mission, here's what we're gonna do. How'd you how you first start approaching the design of the capstone cubesat?
1: Yeah, and that really started from understanding some of the stuff that we had, had been working with Diane and her team on, which is to say, hey, what what is what is the gateway target orbit? What is the the near rectilinear halo orbit? What is the How can we be useful in that orbit? Um, And then one of the other key pieces for us um, was really from the very beginning, understanding that we can get to that orbit um, using what we refer to as a ballistic lunar transfer, but as effectively a very fuel-efficient transfer to get to these type of three-body orbits at the moon. Um, And the reason that was so important was because... With that knowledge, we were able to start designing a mission and and, and the requirements for a mission that could fit in a small package. We didn't need... Big, huge propulsion system. We needed a. We could do this in a small CubeSat form factor. And once we realized that that was possible, that really kind of unlocked a lot more here in terms of uh, speed and in terms of leveraging really what uh, the ind- commercial industry, with NASA's support for many years, had been developing for CubeSats. And so we were able to really pick up on things that that had already been built for the most part and focus on just customizing a few parts of the mission that were going to be unique uh, for flying at the moon. And that really is what allowed us to be aggressive with schedule. And I, I also, as I mentioned before, we really had kind of uh, uh, an aggressive schedule mindset from the beginning. Uh, not to say that we thought that was going to be easy, and it, and it certainly wasn't easy, um, but that was really a laser focus of, of what we were doing was how are the things we're, you know, designing or trading or what vendors might we work with, how are those decisions going to impact schedule? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was really uh, important for us because as a precursor mission, uh, you know, by definition, we need to to be out there and learning as quickly as we can, so that some of these uh, lessons learned can be fed back into to other programs.
0: Understood. Yeah, you guys had to move really, really quickly. So so, Diane, I mean, th- thinking about that, uh, NASA's charged with with, um, and, and Brad pointed to the fact that it's a very collaborative approach to figuring this stuff out. That put a lot of pressure on NASA and the Gateway program to define a lot of these things very quickly, right? As as Brad was mentioning, we were pulling knowledge from NASA to understand exactly what it is that Gateway needed. That put a lot of pressure on you and your team to say, Okay, this is this is sort of the requirements that we're going for. This is this is what we need to understand. And you had to move relatively quickly on that.
2: Yeah, that's true. Um, that's true, though. I mean, we were moving quickly anyway, because at the same time that Brad's getting Capstone ready, NASA's starting to build the power and propulsion element, the first in the halo, the first two pieces of the gateway itself. Uh-huh. So in order to understand, you know, for example, how much, take it back to the, the gateway world, how much, how, how big do the propellant tanks on PPE have to be to keep us up there for a whole lifetime? So we were, we were, we were looking into this stuff anyway. But like Brad mentioned, we have, you know, we share some of the same team members, um, from Advanced Space on the Gateway Mission Design team. So we have this great back and forth between, you know, the, the two missions, the Capstone folks and the, the Gateway folks. So anything we learn for one of the missions is completely applicable to the other one. It's also been super nice to have, you know, because we're, we're, we're developing our simulations for Capstone and Gateway independently, which means we're flying in this new orbit regime, um so we need to be real careful that you know we don't have necessarily intuition to look back on to say well this previous mission got this results and my results are matched those so they must be right so but what we do have is two completely independent simulations up and running written in different by different people and different software packages so we each can be used to validate the other um, especially sometimes we find that our results are coming out a little bit more favorable than we might have expected and so when you you, know, you want to make sure you're not being unrealistically optimistic. So it's super nice to have both teams independently studying this new orbit regime and supporting each other um, so we can be confident in our results.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Um Brad, I want to I want to go back to the CubeSat a little bit um, and understand some of the you, you, um you know, kind of taking these lessons and sharing and understanding more about what it is Gateway needs and what it is Capstone is able to do and comparing these things, diving a little bit more into the um CubeSat design um, itself. So, so uh, Diane was mentioning uh, th- these larger scale ideas that are needed for Gateway, like the power and propulsion, like s- stuff like that. But what are some of the components of Capstone that are on board? Like, what what uh, what is the propulsion element? How does it navigate? What are some of the systems on board that make Capstone what it is?
1: Sure. The the spacecraft itself. Just to give uh, listeners kind of perspective, a uh, 12U CubeSat. You know, it's sort of like a roller, a roller bag luggage, you know, size thing. Like you could, you could probably check check it in the luggage if you wanted to. Um, I, would, I we we never did, but just to give you an idea, there's something you know, if you wanted, to, you could carry it. You know, it's very small. I want to just be clear, clear, clear about this, right? There's no, there's no people in there. A uh, very small thing. Um, you know, about the size of a microwave oven. is kind of the way we talk about it. Yeah. And so what we one of the first challenges we had was there's a lot. Do you have to fit to do something that's going to go beyond Earth orbit? It's going to go to the Moon. In fact, uh, you know, we during the mission went over 1.5 million kilometers, almost a million miles away. So there's a lot to fit in into the package there. And so that was a big challenge. And, and what we were able to put in there, the key pieces of it um, was a, a propulsion system um, that is, uh, it's a monopropellant hydrazine propulsion system um, that gives us the, the, the thrust we need. Um, since we separated from the launch vehicle on, on July 4th, uh, we have to do maneuvers all the way uh, to the moon, little correction maneuvers, little targeting maneuvers. Um, and then, Ultimately, uh, on November 13th in the afternoon, uh, in the couple days after this will air, uh, we'll do our critical insertion maneuver into the NRHO. Um, And then from there, um, uh, as Diane had mentioned, the orbit – Takes about six and a half days, so we say about a week uh, to get around the moon. And we anticipate doing about one maneuver a week to just sort of stay in that orbit, clean up errors, and, 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 and remain in the region we want to be. So, propulsion system, very, very important. And that was uh, developed for us during the program very rapidly by a company called Stellar Exploration. We're really, really proud of that part of the program. Um, and then to get to what we're going to be doing when we're in the, the NRHO. Maybe if your you know, listeners see a picture of Capstone, it has this almost like a top hat looking thing on the top of it. And that's our cross link radio. And so that's a, a radio that we'll be using to talk with and to exchange a signal with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is. A NASA mission has been there for over a decade, Um, and and one of the key parts of our mission is to demonstrate that we'll be able to talk with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and from talking to LRO, uh, be able to get a measurement of the distance between the two spacecraft, uh, us in a NRHO, LRO, in a low lunar orbit, and from that measurement, uh, we'll be able to feed that into our our CAPS navigation software on board the satellite. Um, which will then allow us to determine where both of those satellites are. And so that's a key thing, right? People think of, you know, GPS chip in your phone tells you where you are, right? Relative to the GPS satellites. We don't have that at the moon. So we're looking at how can we build capabilities for satellites like Capstone and, and future missions to mm-hmm. know where they are at the moon. Um, and so we have the crosslink radio. radio. Uh, we also added a chip scale atomic clock. So we'll be able to do some demonstrations looking at signals that are just sending from the Earth to the spacecraft, uh, and then the spacecraft will determine how far away it is from the Earth based on those signals. Uh, and then we also have a uh, a camera on board, um, and so we'll be able to take pictures and be able to do other technology demonstration with the the payload imager that we have. So that's kind of all the pieces of the puzzle. Um, another key part, which is less obvious if you're looking at the satellite from the outside, but is inside the satellite, we have a a dedicated flight computer um, for doing these. Automation demonstrations. So we'll be able to test software for onboard operations on a computer that's dedicated just for doing that experiment. Uh, so it's not gonna. There's there's no risk of you know interfering with the standard operations of the satellite, which means we can take some risks with what we're demonstrating and testing. And we're really excited about the potential for that.
0: Awesome, awesome. very, very cool um, very cool spacecraft that's heading um, into NRHO very, very soon at this point. Um, now, in terms of the construction and, and testing of everything, you also you mentioned uh, the aggressive schedule, right? You have all these different components. What did you guys do to make sure that everything was going to work properly before you launched it into space?
1: Certainly. So um yeah, we our, our vendors or the, the folks who built the spacecraft and our supporting operations, uh Tyvek Nanosatellite Systems, they, they had a very thorough test campaign that they conducted um with all the pieces of uh, hardware for the satellite integrated uh and, and tested. And so that, that really helped us to understand as these things were coming together um, from different sources, different partners were delivering things. You know, we had that uh, all together and integrated and tested uh, in Southern California before we before we shipped out for launch. The other thing that helps us at the, the mission approach is that our transfer to the moon on this ballistic transfer, it takes three to four months. Um, and so we're able to now, as we're you know, on our way uh, about to do our insertion maneuver uh, in November to, to test out a lot of those capabilities and really focus on commissioning in space. And so that's been a big way to help us, you know, once we, once we get to the uh, NRHO, we can hit the ground running on a lot of these technology demonstration activities, and that'll be enabled because we had this transfer to, to really, you know, Bring things up to speed in space, make sure things are behaving as we expect in space. And, and as Dan alluded to earlier, in some cases, we're actually seeing things perform Better than we expected, uh, which is always is always a nice uh, a nice change of pace when things outperform your your expectations.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, l- let me let me uh, take a little detour over to this ballistic transfer to to better understand this. So, I mean, one of the things you mentioned about this this way of navigating to the moon was um, its its significant savings on fuel, which makes a ton of sense. But if I were to just with my limited knowledge of of how this works, I think my understanding is the reason you would probably want to use this transfer to is is because of its limitations on how much fuel you need to use because you don't have people on board you can um, you can play with time a lot more liberally right obviously with with people you don't want to be spending a couple months on the way to the moon but is that really the benefit of the ballistic transfer is is you can focus as as fuel as one of your primary concerns without having to deal with the pesky humans on board that want to get home
1: exactly yeah i kind of like to i kind of like to think of it almost as the ballistic transfer is sort of the sailboat approach right Ah, it takes a little longer you you, but you're you're maybe using you know you use the sun's gravity you're taking your time um but you know the the more direct transfers which definitely which which you want to use with people are more of like the speedboat right you you put the you put the the motor in uh, in full speed ahead and you get there uh, as quickly as you can and so that, certainly um that's that's the trade off yeah it's it's time for fuel
0: time for fuel okay that is the that's a wonderful analogy now um you You got the system constructed. You got all the different components on the spacecraft. You tested it out. I want to know how do you ended up working with rocket lab to to uh, to launch from, I believe is New Zealand, right?
1: sure yeah yeah it was um it was a very exhilarating night uh watching that go up in in the nighttime launch that we had from from New Zealand mm-hmm. so the the journey that got us to to New Zealand actually so NASA in this in the, for this mission selected the the ride for us so they were the ones who, ah. who bought the the rocket um, from Rocket Lab um and one of the exciting things about it which is part of the reason you know I think that NASA went with that approach um was that Capstone you know the small microwave sized satellite Uh, was the only payload on the rocket. And so that was something that was pretty novel um, was to think about taking a small satellite and having it be the only or the primary payload on a rocket. That's really not something that's ever been been done before, certainly not into deep space. And so I think that one of the things that was exciting about that is it really demonstrated the potential for future missions with small spacecraft. You know, there's a lot of innovation in small spacecraft and small launch vehicles, right? So there's obviously Rocket Lab uh, did a great job getting us on our way, uh, but there's other rockets too. And so I think just that idea of saying, hey, we can take small satellites, put them on small rockets, and go do things in deep space uh, was a pretty uh, exciting precedent to set.
0: That's amazing. Now, I understand uh, shortly after launch, you guys had some uh, communications challenges and, and you mentioned challenges that you had to kind of go along the way. But this one, I understand, uh, was, you know, it, it, w- it was definitely one of the um, it, it was def- definitely probably a nerve wracking moment for you for you guys. And I want to to kind of get your gauge your thoughts on on exactly what happened and, and what the how the team sort of was feeling and then work through the issue to resolve it.
1: Yeah, not gonna lie, that was a pretty stressful forty-three hours. Um, so, you know, for context, uh, just shortly after separating uh, from the the rocket, Fourth of July. You know, we were really excited. What a what a day to, to be on our way to the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a few hours uh, of of being in space, uh, a series of uh, of things happened um, that meant that we couldn't talk to the satellite anymore, and and that was uh, terrifying. And and <laughs> but I will say, I was. So proud of the team that we had really across the board. Uh, like I mentioned before, not just advanced space, all the vendors, all the partners, NASA even really came together, uh, worked the problem. You know, one of the things people don't realize when when you're when you're talking about these spacecraft anomalies or issues is is the first thing is you you don't even know what what you you don't know, right? Like there's you, you don't have a uh, a camera crew up there telling you what's going on, so you got to shake through a lot of different potential scenarios to figure out what happened. Um, and and I think that having our team come together, you know, close ranks across the whole project, really helped us very quickly to isolate. Okay. What do we think is going on? What are the what are the you know ways we can recover? What's going to happen? How's it going to how's it going to move forward? And that really and that really helped a lot. And people who are interested can go back and see because we were really trying to be as you know transparent and open about this as we could. So we were we were sharing you know the best knowledge we had you know publicly uh, as quickly as we could, which was certainly uh, added some risk. But we thought it was important uh, with all the attention we were getting that we weren't going to just hide uh, behind. You know, a barrier, and so one of the things that really helped us to get to a point where we could recover um, was that I mentioned we separated. We had about you know a few hours of of normal operations before these issues happened,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and during that time, uh, we were able to get an, an, an a navigation solution. We were able to get an estimate of where the satellite was. That was really really good, and so I think that's something that was key. Our team really was was over delivered in that respect, and and the reason that was important is because we can't talk to the spacecraft, it can't talk to us. And so we're trying to troubleshoot the spacecraft. The the problem would have been orders of magnitude harder if we were trying to troubleshoot the spacecraft and we didn't know where it was. Right. <laughs> and so the key thing for us was when the spacecraft was recovered, it was exactly where we thought it would be. So we didn't have to spend a whole bunch of time and resources looking for it. It was exactly where where we predicted it would be. And so that, that, that whole, like, you know, story there that we could do an hour long, probably uh, on that (laughs) by itself, but, but just the fact that we were able to come together, uh, recover, and and, and importantly for, for other, for for the rest of our mission, other missions, we were able to learn from that. Right. So there are, there are things that came out of that stressful 43 hours that are going to make the rest of the mission better and lower risk. You know, this, this issue happening, uh, on our way to do our insertion maneuver at the NRHO could have been way worse, right? So having this issue come up early, we were able to to figure it out. We were able to fix the problems. There were some issues with software. There's a whole bunch of things that came together. We were able to, we've already fixed those, right? So that was, uh, was not pleasant, but I would say going forward, it it did actually give us a bit more confidence as we moved into other, other phases of the mission uh, that, uh, that we're, we're feeling pretty good about how things are going now
0: very optimistic view yeah I know uh, the, the drama of that I can I can absolutely relate to it's uh it's it's, it's, it's imagine all that hard work you know after after the, all these years and the aggressive schedule and then and then you have an issue like that but it's really the, the, the it's stories like these that I think make spaceflight what it is you know it's it's working through these uh issues unexpected issues and a very challenging time frame and and uh and everything coming through together and a lot of it a lot of these stories that we hear, especially on this podcast, have to do with exactly what you're saying, Brad, which is all the teams that are supporting. And I know, Diane, I'm sure you had complete insight into everything that was going on. Brad even mentioned that NASA teams were fully integrated into all of this. Can you talk about your perspective of this whole situation? And then in, in kind of adding on to that is, is really just how, how NASA is working with Advanced Space and some of these other uh, companies that Brad was mentioning to, to, uh, to op- for the operations of this mission.
2: Sure. So, you know, as as far as the, the, the calm loss that, that the capstone experienced, you know, the, the team was great at at keeping everyone, you know, up to date with, with the the news of what was going on. Um, I think that was probably the moment when I realized how important and interested in this mission I am. Like I just, I'm very invested in the capstone mission, um, because it's going to be testing out the stuff that I've been working on for, you know, five years. And, um, and so it was, it was it was definitely a a terrifying moment and, and just the the joy when uh, when the radio came back on was was palpable. I think everyone was was celebrating quite a bit, so that
0: was really exciting. <laughs> that must feel really good. Now, in terms of the uh, the day to day operations, right? So, obviously, uh, we're recording this a little bit ahead of time, but uh, we, we we are continuously mentioning that November is really when we're getting into we're going to start getting into the NRHO. Um, uh, Brad, I'll go to you for this for, for a second. Just that 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 the the journey thus far really is what I'm looking for from from Earth to this ballistic uh, trans. To lunar, um, to to the moon, um, and what you guys have been doing throughout these months to to set us up for really what is um, the the key uh, focus and objectives of this mission is is the is the operations in NRHO.
1: Uh, absolutely, yeah. So just maybe to set the stage for for how we do operations and maybe kind of provide a little insights here. Mm-hmm. So um, advanced Space is the. Actually, the owner of the satellite, we're the prime contractor for the contract with NASA. Mm -hmm. Um, Our partners at Tyvek uh, in in Irvine, California, um, they run the Mission Operations Center, or Mm. the MOC, and they're the point for operating the spacecraft in terms of telemetry, day-to-day operations, you know basically all the stuff that if this 12U CubeSat was in any orbit all the other stuff you have to do right there's it's there's other you know a lot of things that have to happen um and then we have here uh, at our offices in Westminster, Colorado just north of Denver what we call the Advanced Space Operations Center or, or the ASOC um and, and and our team here in the ASOC is doing all of the this lunar and the mission unique type of operation. Mm. So for us, that means that we talk about sort of flight dynamics, so navigation, designing maneuvers for the spacecraft, as well as all our payload operations. So the payload operations predominantly are going to be what we're thinking about in the NRHO itself, and so on the journey net to to the moon, we've been focused a lot on the navigation uh, and maneuver design, and then. All of those operations is, are really critically supported uh, by the NASA team at the deep space network, and so those are the the ground uh, tracking dishes that we use to, to talk to the satellite and also to to, uh, to figure out where it is and so that's sort of how we do do operations and and as it relates to the journey to the moon, um, one of the things that that really came together to highlight for me some of the importance of this which which i at, at, at first hadn't really anticipated, um, has been some of the knowledge. Uh, exchange we've had with with particularly the secondary payloads on the Artemis One mission. Mm. Um, most of those payloads are actually flying the same radio that we're flying, um, and they're also using some of the same ground stations we're using, except some of them are actually using, are, are more reliant on some of the newer ground stations than even we are. And so we've actually... Very quickly, you know, from, hey, get into space and, and, and get to the moon, had to start turning around, and we're really, really proud to be helping to create presentations, to share data, to help those missions who are, who are or you know, will be on the Artemis one secondaries, uh, presumably when this is aired, are, are flying through space. Um, you know, they will... Uh, have learned things that we, you know, lessons we learned that they'll be able to go into their mission operations without uh, without having uncertainties and having, you know, appropriate assumptions on noise. And a lot of the same tools that we've configured for our flight operations for Capstone to get to the moon uh, are things that, you know, should there be any issues or other uh, reasons that we need to come in, you know, we're available to help. And so that's something that, uh, you know, the timing of capstone with respect to the Artemis one flight really, you know, resonated in terms of these are, you know, no kidding. Lessons learned that we're able to hand over to other missions uh, to try to help make them successful, and I think that's something that you know, we've always thought forward to the Gateway to you know future Artemis missions. Certainly, we're we're focused on that too. But the immediacy uh, with which uh, these things are happening now with respect to the Moon, uh, I think, is really uh, really notable in terms of the value proposition for what we've we've been doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a very dynamic time. Lots of lots of things to talk about that are in the lunar facility. All like you're saying, all seemingly all at the same time. It's just a, the activity is just exploding, and it's 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 very very exciting. Um, very soon, you know, you're going to be operating in NRHO, and uh, you guys have mission objectives, of course, that you want to accomplish in there. Brad, you already mentioned the communications with LRO. You got you got some of that. You're, you're going to be testing out the propulsion systems. Through how what do your operations look like when you're in NRHO? What's your um, mission timeline for how long you're going to be there doing some data collection? What is what does that period look like once you're once you're in NRHO?
1: Sure, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> after we arrive, which, again, is, is sort of our most critical operation, you know, I, I've been telling our team it's our, it's our like, 30 minutes of terror, if you can think of the sort of Mars landing stuff, because a lot of stuff has to happen. Uh, most of it's automated on board, mm. and, and that's really a, our most critical event. So, you know, the afternoon of November 13th will really be focused on on that activity happening. Uh, after that, uh, we'll have some correction, kind of cleanup maneuvers, and then we'll really start to settle into this, this orbit, this, this NRHO. In um, the first, you know, few weeks, um, we'll really look like us doing detailed navigation analysis. Um, we'll start designing these weekly maneuvers, um, and we'll really kind of get a sense, as, as Dan was saying earlier, you know, we're not – we're not worried that we, you know, we, we have the, the physics pretty well modeled. For us now, it's it's are the assumptions and the operations, mm-hmm. you know, as as well understood as we think. And so that's really what we'll be focused on for the first few weeks. And then, um, you know, given that time frame in, in the holidays, you know, roughly January is when we expect we'll start doing payload operations with, Um, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And that's a very exciting interaction between our team, the team at Goddard that runs LRO, uh, as well as as others involved. And so that'll be really the first big part of the the CAPS demonstration. Um, But one of the things we, you know, talk about with Capstone Is the first four letters are caps. We're we're working on this navigation capability. The last four letters are technology, operations, and navigation experiment. You know, that the last, the second half of the acronym is really what we have been doing all the way to the moon, what we'll be doing for those first few weeks in the orbit, Mm -hmm. which is to say, you know, Understanding operations, quantifying some of these things that that we have models for, but we want to really understand. And and again, you know, handing off those lessons learned. You know, we our teams have have already been collaborating on some of the modeling performance with with folks that. Uh, Work with Diane on uh, Gateway and PPE and, and others, and so that that part of it, it, it's sort of it's hard maybe for people to pull that out. Uh, but there are just a, there's a lot of things that we don't know. We don't know that that we're going to pull out of this, and that's what we're really uh, focused on handing off again as quickly as possible. Time is important here, um, so that that can then inform future development and future activities.
0: All right. Yeah. So very exciting. Very exciting time coming up here in the very near future. Now, Diane, you and the Gateway teams, obviously, I think, are, are going to be very interested in this. You know, th- not only the thirty minutes of terror, <laughs> make sure it actually gets into where you want it to go, but very interested in the data collection that's happening uh, while in NRHO, So, how are you going to be working with Advanced Space to 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 understand the data, to monitor the spacecraft, and then eventually take that information, parse through it, and and make some changes or updates or or further your understanding of gateway operations for the future?
2: okay. so we are we are um already receiving uh, great information from the advanced space team um, and and a capstone team. for example, the the tracking data, the navigation data from the deep space network is already being transferred over to navigators in uh, JSC's mission operations team so they can get um, their ground system going. And some extra testing for the lunar transfers that, that they'll be going, as as, uh, as Brad mentioned. So, um, as Capstone enters its NRHO and transitions to primary operations, we're going to see an expanded and formalized uh, back and forth between the Capstone team and the Gateway team. So we operate in analysis cycles hmm.
0: um,
2: on the on the Gateway side, and so as the as the designs mature for all of the pieces of Gateway, you know, all the the components and the designs. Um, all the systems, as we start to learn more and more about what we're building, um, we update our assumptions. And so the capstone results are going to go straight into the next round of the mission designs analysis cycle. So as we learn from capstone, we'll be able to update our assumptions um, and mature our designs going forward.
0: All right. Yeah. Now this is really critical, right? Because Gateway obviously has a lot of components to it. You talked about power and propulsion. Um, now, just at a high level, uh, when, when you're talking about, you know, you have a pretty good understanding of NRHO and its behaviors. Capstone, obviously, going to add to some data that, that as you mentioned, you're going to be using. But from, from a really a high level, are there key differences that, that maybe most folks would overlook? Like, for example, one of the things that really comes to mind for me is... Capstone is the size of a microwave oven, where Gateway is the size of a uh, you know a, a small space station, right? So huge differences in size. I wonder if something like that has just you know very basic ch- uh, changes to just you know what how you would take the data from Capstone to apply it to Gateway. So so stuff like that. What are just you know are there are there key things that uh, that are just you know just base differences between um, that that you have to consider when you're taking some of these data
2: for sure there's there's some serious differences between the spacecraft i mean one is that gateway is going to host crew uh, so we have a lot more perturbations that we're going to have to deal with that capstone doesn't we have you know we're going to have rendezvous and docking that we'll have to consider uh we'll have venting from life support systems so carbon dioxide we've vented into the air and every time you do a little puff you know you're out there in space and so it, it tends to torque the spacecraft So you have to correct for those perturbations. Um, and then a the crew's doing things like exercise. And so that's you know on board, that it provides perturbations as well. Um, and then you mentioned, like you said, the size gateways a lot bigger than a microwave. Um, so you know with this much larger, longer spacecraft, w- one example is as we go over the moon, you know as we as we pass close to the moon, um we get gravity gradient torque on the spacecraft, which is so our attitude control situation is just a lot different um, on the on the big, old, noisy, puffy, gateway with, with crew jumping around and dancing on board, you know, um, versus the, 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 the capstone, um, the smaller spacecraft mm. that's quiet without all the perturbation.
0: Okay. And there's no... I mean, another really important thing... Sorry, go on. No, I was... go ahead. You said another really important thing?
2: Yeah, we, we have to always consider with a crewed spacecraft abort opportunities and crew safety. So where a CubeSat may be able to be risk tolerant and experiment and try new things, And with a crewed spacecraft, the safety is is critical, right? So our top priority is always crew safety, always getting them home safely, um, which which adds uh, additional complications when you're designing a crewed spacecraft.
0: Okay, yeah, understood. Yeah, now I I was going to ask about the um, the perturbations. So it sounds like um, you know these are something that you're going to have to account for. But um, Brad, it doesn't. I I don't think there's no like. um, Simulated perturbations that you guys are doing with the capstone thing, right? Like you're not um, introducing, uh, you know, small thrusts to simulate perturbations that you need to correct for mid mission, or is that, or is that part of the mission design?
1: No, I, unfortunately I wasn't uh, creative enough to think about little simulated astronauts dancing around on, on capstone, but now I wish I, I wish I had. Um, but uh, for, for us, I think the way to think about it is that, as, as Dan mentioned, you know, we're in many ways quieter in the sense that we don't have mm. all these other things going on. Yeah. Um. So, so I, I think of it as it's good to sort of have that reference of what will the quiet be. And then you can obviously figure out for, for Gateway, and, and they have, you know, how to accommodate for all these other things that are going on. Yeah. Um, and so for us, to me, I think of almost a sort of like a walk and then run kind of mindset. so so we won't have a lot of those perturbations, but, but I think we'll be able to lock down the you know baseline operations and then we'll be able to see uh you know as as you add more for example schedule more tracking data you know that allows you then to accommodate navigation solutions that are maybe have a little more uh perturbation or a little more dynamics uh, going on like we'll see on gateway so i think to me it's sort of a natural progression uh, but like i wasn't uh, creative enough to add the the uh, simulated dancing astronauts.
0: <laughs> no, I think I, I, that makes perfect sense, right? You, you have the, the, the smooth operations, and then obviously you can sort of tweak with it um, as, as you're understanding more about Gateway, but um, you know, you're going to be doing that for quite some time, uh, right? Uh, Brad, how long is the mission, and then at what point do you decide mission success, or we have the data that we want, and then how do you dispose of the spacecraft, or maybe do you even just leave it there?
1: Sure. Yeah. So certainly we don't we don't leave it there. So yeah. the the baseline right now is after we get into the to the orbit, is our plan is to operate there for eighteen months. Mm. Uh, one of the things that's really important we haven't talked about is that we are in like the exact same orbit the Gateway will be in, and and that's important because that then allows us to demonstrate not just the orbit operations, but also you know we avoid eclipses, which is a big thing, and we can always see the Earth. There's a lot of uh, importance to that. But we'll be in that orbit right now. The plan is for eighteen months. Um, the The system itself, uh, we do not expect will be fuel limited, so we're not going to run out of gas. Um, and so our plan will be to continue operating either in an NRHO or, you know, we may need to, and we're fine with that, to get out of the way if, you know, as things start to arrive uh, other orbits at the Moon. Uh, really, until we start to see systems that uh, that on the spacecraft that are are you know reaching their end of life. Um, it, our, our whole hope will be continue to operate. Um, uh, but it, it, anyways, no matter what we end up doing, uh, our end of life, uh, is really important because we like I said at the beginning, sustainability for, for space operations is a, is critical to us. And so we want to have a safe uh, cislunar area. We don't want, you know, dead satellites flying around. So our, our end-of-life plan uh, will be right now as a targeted impact on the, the surface of the moon uh, to dispose of the system, get it out of the way. Uh, and, and importantly, that's that'll be targeted so that there are certain areas on the moon. Certainly, we don't want to be uh, impacting, and so we'll be very careful to do that. And, then, and and something probably people don't realize is that there is a lot of work that goes into to those type of analyses before we even get to the launch pad. And so we've worked um, these type of analyses and plans with NASA and with others in the government um, from the very beginning to really make sure that when we're doing things at the moon, our goal is to be very safe and transparent. So we don't want, you know, there to be, you know, secrecy around it. We don't want there mm-hmm. to be zombie satellites flying around. We want to do our best. Uh, to make sure that we dispose of of what we're using at the end, and that people know know what we're doing.
0: Awesome. I wanted to sort of end with this for you both Um, just this whole idea of just sort of where we are in terms of space flight and just this whole landscape of of all the things that we're doing in space right now Um, Brad I'll start with you just this uh, focusing more so on the idea of uh, I think the commercial aspect of things and working with you know with NASA and like you're saying with other companies to execute these things you know you talked about all these activities you mentioned the secondary payloads in um, in uh, as part of the Artemis One mission. There's just, there's so much going on and I wonder just your feelings about working in the space industry at this time.
1: Absolutely. Um, what, what a great question to end on. So I, I think my, my, you know, emotional answer to that is that I'm exhilarated to be doing this right now mm. and, and I think, and I'm going to use this we here broadly, I think with NASA's leadership and, and industry support, I think we are just getting started, uh, which I think is really awesome. You know, I, I you know, we, we've we've had a lot of talk about doing these type of things before, but but now it's really happening. Um, and the fact that we can play a small role in it uh, is really a, a dream come true for me. And it's it's something that we we think is is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. We see opportunities. You know, certainly NASA has all, a lot of great stuff going on. We're supporting a lot of great projects uh, at the moon and in other places. Uh, I think it's really we're in an era now. I think in space exploration that is uniquely. Both exciting, certainly Apollo is exciting, but I think what's also what's maybe more interesting to me now is that it's robust. It's not just you know one program and one mission. It's lots of programs. It's lots of missions. And certainly, if we're going to compare it to Apollo, I wasn't alive during Apollo, so I have a Special spot in my heart for this one because I'm alive for it.
0: <laughs> of course, yeah, you get to experience it. Um, amazing, amazing answer, uh, Brad. Diane, same question to you. Expanding on that too, really, just the idea of Artemis, right? And of course, this is this is really what we're talking about here. This capstone mission is gonna be is gonna be really previewing long term. As you mentioned, you used the word permanent, right? When you when you were talking about Gateway, we're talking about as Brad is mentioning a sustained, robust future in in lower in um in lunar orbit, uh, continued lunar operations, this expansive commercial uh market that's working with NASA, it's just it's a very exciting time. I wonder your perspective on this.
2: Yeah, it's so exciting. Yeah, we're going to the moon to stay as as they say and it's just an incredible time. You know, we've got We've got KPLO, the Korea Pathfinder Lunar Orbiter, and Capstone already on their way to the moon. We've got Artemis 1 imminent, along with its 10 CubeSats that it's carrying, and some of those are headed to the moon as well. And then going forward, we've got the Eclipse program that's going to be landing payloads on the surface of the moon, plus, you know, Artemis 2 and 3 taking crew out to the moon for the first time in, in, you know, Brad's lifetime and my lifetime. And then, you know, starting starting with the later Artemis missions headed through Gateway, with a sustainable presence at the Moon and beyond, it's it's an incredibly exciting time to be in space. You know, it's you know, as as they say, space is the final frontier. There's just so much left out there to learn and understand. And every time, it, you know, we find a simple question, um, but then you dive into it and you realize how much there is to discover. There's just so much to discover out there with every little question you want to answer, they're never little questions. They always go so deep (laughs) and there's so much to so much to
0: explore amazing a of space question oh uh, yeah it's great i love i love talking with folks about about this sort of thing and and it just seems like every time i get to talk with folks about their exactly as you're saying Diane like their unique part of the mission about this exploration adding you know a fingerprint on human exploration and and adding to right you guys are exploring nrho right something that is is a is a frontier that we're going to discover we're going to learn more about and then and then we're going to continue operations there it's just so exciting and just hearing your passion about is just uh, is exhilarating to me as well. So I wanted to end by thanking you both for coming on Houston. Wave podcast. Understanding more about this mission and and what it's leading to, uh, very exciting time. So Brad and Diane, thank you both for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thank you. Real pleasure.
0: Thanks
2: a lot. It was
0: a ton of fun. Houston, go! big shuttle Roger, zero G. And I feel shuttle has cleared the dock. Became a for all mankind. Actually. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: Never used to. Welcome to space.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around. So fun talking with Brad and Diane today about Capstone. Very exciting time coming up uh, very shortly. You heard November 13th is right now the scheduled time uh, for Capstone to enter into NRHO and uh, the very dramatic 30 minutes of terror that Brad was alluding to. Make sure you follow the Capstone mission and its updates November 13th to see uh, what that's all about to begin uh, its operations in NRHO. Very exciting time. Of course, this is uh, this is uh, part of uh, Artemis missions, what we're going to learn from from this is going to inform uh for for our operations in Artemis 3 and 4 and beyond for NRHO so very exciting time if you want to learn more about Artemis you can of course check us out at nasa.gov/artemis if you're interested in orbits and mission design, we had a conversation with Najud Moranci a couple of weeks ago for episode 255. Uh, we dove into more about NRHO as well as many other orbits uh, and really an expansive look at uh, Artemis uh, and, and its mission profile uh, really uh, as a whole, looking at many different missions and the logic behind them. It was a really interesting discussion. So if you're interested particularly in orbits, I would definitely check that episode out. Uh, episode 255. But if you want a more expansive look at everything Artemis, uh, then we have a full collection that you can look at uh, of all of our episodes. You can listen to them in no particular order. Just really choose the ones that interest you most. It's at uh, nasa.gov slash johnson slash hwhap slash Artemis dash episodes, or just go to your favorite search engine and type in Houston. We have a podcast Artemis episodes. It'll come up right at the top. Uh, we're one of many NASA podcasts across the whole agency. You can check all of them out uh, at nasa.gov podcast. There's some great shows. Uh, I let a lot of content out there if you want to binge uh, any of the things that they have going on. But if you want to talk to us specifically at Houston, we have a podcast. We're at the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show or maybe ask a question. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on August 26, 2022. Thanks to Will Flato, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, Jaden Jennings, and Dylan Cannell, And of course, thanks again to Brad Cheatham and Diane Davis for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.